In a 1934 speech delivered to the Empire Club of Canada, S. Alfred Jones, author of a book titled Is Fascism the Answer, claimed, Fascism is sweeping Europe because its nations are near enough to fascist Italy to see the advantages of her system. In his speech, Jones went on to applaud Mussolini's seizure of power in Italy, which he claimed was a patriotic effort to save that country from communism. Speakers at the Empire Club didn't only praise fascist Italy, however. In 1938, just a few months before the Kristallnacht pogrom that saw the deaths of at least 91 Jewish people, commentator Rex Fox declared, Germany at once impresses you as a highly disciplined country. I can speak in the highest terms of the courtesy with which I was greeted by German officials and members of the government departments. In a recent article for the Maple's Great Gilded North series, Mitchell Thompson writes, the Canadian military's efforts in the Second World War are often mythologized so as to portray opposition to fascism as a cross-class trait, shared by workers, bosses and politicians alike. The disturbing reality, however, is that well into the late 1930s, a significant section of Canada's elite admired fascism in Italy and even in Germany. I'm Alex Koch, Managing Editor of The Maple, and I'm happy to be joined today by my friend Mitchell Thompson to discuss why the hell so many Canadian elites and politicians had such a soft spot for fascism. Mitchell, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So those two quotes that I just cited, like they're both referenced in your article. Um, and they're from this institution called the Empire Club of Canada, which despite its rather arcane name, I think still exists today. Like, can you tell me a little bit about this group? Like, what is their deal? Why do we still have an Empire Club? Yeah, so the Empire Club in Canada is kind of, I mean, in a way, it's almost a classical kind of liberal institution of, of kind of a lead institution, a kind of social club um, for, for the intelligentsia that was set up to kind of discuss the issues of the day. Um, and they would have international speakers, uh, men of letters and, and politicians who would, would come and uh, discuss the, the perspectives, the things that the, the elite of, of Toronto, uh, which had recently been called New York, uh, but uh, Toronto at the, at the time uh, needed to hear. And uh, you can read, there's the full archive of all the past speeches at the Empire Club. And um, it, it says, we would find many of the things said <laughs> at past em in past Empire Club's addresses repugnant today. It does not reflect the Empire Club uh, as it is now. So established in 1903 as a response to Canadian political unrest, the Empire Club of Canada quickly became a leading speaker's forum. Beginning with the speeches to address Canada's relationship with the British Empire and the United States, the ECC continues to tackle the issues that affect the lives of Canadians. The club invites speakers to present various perspectives, including those that may not be popular but should be heard. Since its inception, the ECC had hosted 3,500 prominent Canadian international speakers, including Prince Edward, uh, the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, Margaret Mead, Christopher Plummer, uh, Roberta Bondar, Maureen Forrester, Adrian Clarkson, Margaret Thatcher, Vladimir Putin, and Bill Gates, to name a few, um, covering business, politics, education, trade, labor, culture, and national issues. As well, as well as other uh, relevant topics that emerge. Um, yeah, so that's the Empire Club. It was established in 1903, as, as said, and, and it was really kind of the, the mouthpiece of the Toronto elite um, and had a number of uh, patricians and members of the uh, nobility uh, as well. Yeah, it's interesting that those speeches are all just like set up there, although they have this disclaimer of, you know, we, we 
we probably aren't fascists nowadays, uh, and I guess we can take them at their word for that. Um, but your article digs also into a lot of the uh, other historical uh, material from like speeches, old newspaper clippings um, that kind of date from the ascent of fascism through to the late 1930s. So kind of two questions on that. Like for the people who were applauding it at that time, um, is there any possibility that they were ignorant to the atrocities that Hitler and Mussolini were committing at that time? And like, why did these people suddenly, uh, you know, I, I assume became quieter in their support for fascism at the turn of the Second World War? Like, did they suddenly see the light and recognize that fascism was evil at the start of the war? It is interesting. I mean, I think one of the piece of context to consider um, is that Canada had just been at war with Germany um, in the First World War, uh, in which anti-German sentiment uh, was quite the norm in, in mainstream Canadian society. I mean, German people were put in internment camps alongside uh, a number of Eastern Europeans. Uh, you know, that they were considered not desirable by the Canadian state. So to ha- go from that to some of these elites sympathizing with Hitler is really quite bizarre. Now, it, it, it certainly depends in, in some parts. You know, I, I think it was mentioned that part of the role in setting up the Empire Club was managing the relationships between the British Empire and Canada. And the British Empire had its own conflicted relationship with the Nazis. We did mention that, that Edward VIII spoke at the Empire Club. I, I'm not going to get into that too much, but uh, people can Google King Edward VIII and uh, where he was in 1937. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it should be mentioned that uh, Winston Churchill in the 20s was a supporter of Mussolini, that they didn't like, perhaps, the uh, German people. They may have had a, a dislike for, for certain Germans. They may have had that xenophobia. But the common thread of Hitler and Mussolini is that they were attacking the trade unions and the broad left. They were, fascism is at its core, a a movement of the enraged middle classes, small shop owners, students at the time, um, and, you know, unemployed soldiers uh, to form a kind of battering ram to smash socialists, communists, and and trade union members. Effectively, uh, you know, Mussolini's famous line was that the trains will run on time by crushing the unions, you know, and and that was something where even though they perhaps didn't, you know, perhaps didn't approve the national culture uh, or the particular um, ideas in the heads of Hitler and Mussolini, they did quite admire. And and when you look at all of the descriptions, when they uh, expressed tones of admiration for uh, Hitler's Germany or Mussolini's Italy, it is all in reference to the order how orderly societies are now, how there are no more strikes. And, uh, and, and they're quite clear about that, that it is very much a, a class sympathy that cuts across uh, nationality between uh, the rulers of Canada and, and the rulers of Germany and Italy. Totally. Uh, one of the more disturbing parts of, of your article as well is like how you highlight um, how much the Conservative Party and, and really mainstream conservative politicians, MPs and a prime minister like actively supported Canadian Nazis uh, at that time. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like, what, why did conservatives want to make allies with these fascist propagandists? 
Yeah. So this is in the early 30s. So the two largest kind of fascist organizations would have been based um, the one named Arkan and, and Whitaker, who uh, I guess was most prominent in, uh, in Winnipeg. There were small fascist groups like in, in Toronto at the, in the beaches along Scarborough. They had a, a swastika club that was famous. Um, and, and that came to a head when they would uh, lead kind of marches and carry swastikas through working class neighborhoods. And that there was a uh, people probably know the Christie Pitts riot. Um, where the workers of Toronto uh, dealt with the uh, the fascists uh, marching into their communities, but uh, so this this was there were there were networks of, of fascist supporters in Canada, and they uh, they published newspapers and they they had a certain circulation. Our camp was known by a nickname the the Canadian Fuhrer, and he was. A, a fascist. He was a supporter of Hitler. He wore the swastika. He believed in all the same anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But having read his book, Judaism and, and Communism, which is uh, available online from some very disreputable sources, I would not suggest uh, downloading it. But also I, I should uh, reference one of the most helpful books in this regard was a book called The Swastika and the Maple Leaf, Fascist Movements in Canada in the 30s. Um, you know, he had a major circulation of his newspaper, and he expressed his his fascist viewpoint and the need to protect the Canadian, or in his case, the Quebec uh, Christian identity from the menace of communism and, and socialism. That he was uh, someone who was committed to defending Canadian capitalism and uh, the. Canadian uh, Christian identity against what you know he he thought was a you know, a foreign menace with his you know widely anti-Semitic um, conspiracy theories, um, but ultimately what uh, the Conservative Party saw in him if you if you read some of the notes that the various MPs wrote and some Conservative senators who who admired Arkan in the 30s is that he was a slightly more extreme ideologue. But that it was a matter, what, what separated them from him was were degrees um, and, and means that they too didn't particularly like Jewish people. And, and I think it, it is worth underlining that, you know, the sort of anti-Semitism that he expressed uh, was a, a bizarre deviation of hatred that was, was deep-seated within Canadian mainstream society and particularly among the Canadian elite. But also that he was the most rabid anti-communist in a party that had long committed itself to defending capitalism as its first order. Super interesting and disturbing. And we, and we should also note that it was by no means just uh, the conservatives who had uh, soft spots for fascists. As you noted, uh, Liberal Prime Minister Mackenzie King wrote rather sympathetic musings about Hitler and his diary in the lead up to the war. He seemed to have uh, this admiration of, of Hitler, the, the figure himself. Do you think anyone should be surprised by this? Like historically, what are some of the ways we've seen fascism and liberalism serve each other's interests? Yeah, well, McKinney King is, is a very uh, interesting man in this regard because he ran as, as a, a real kind of centrist who would try and win over kind of the tops of, of the labor movement, but also maintain private property. So he was, I mean, one of his first 
political involvements was in the aftermath of the Winnipeg general strike, um, where he, you know, helped defend capitalism from striking workers and uh, played a role in, in the kind of wave of reaction that, that sought to crush the labor movement afterwards. Um, he had his own theories about labor management and, and industrial relations, uh, which sought to suppress strikes, but, but they were, it was a liberal worldview, right? It, he was, by all accounts, a liberal Democrat, effectively, but one committed to maintaining capitalism um, and not afraid to use force when needed to do so, as all liberal Democrats uh, are. Now, what explains his sympathy for Hitler? There's an interesting letter he wrote to the Liberal Premier of Ontario during the Oshawa General Motors strike, where he opposed uh, sending in the army, um, I believe, to crush the strike in 1937, for fear that that would enrage the unions and unleash, uh, and keep in mind this is in 1937, something comparable to what he described as the Spanish situation in Canada, in reference to the Spanish Civil War, where you had a mass uprising of, of workers defending the elected uh, left-wing government against Hitler, Mussolini, and, and Franco, the, the three leading fascists in, in Europe. So he was wary of provoking a mass movement, and I, I, I don't doubt that he wouldn't have wanted to bring a, a fascist government into Canada. Um, that said, he did quite like that Germany seemed very peaceful and that he described Hitler as having saved his country from tyranny. Now, uh, Mackenzie King was a strange man. He had a lot of strange beliefs about ghosts. And I, I'm sure there is, you could find some conspiratorial thinking behind that. But effectively, what it is that he was saving Germany from what Mackenzie's King's view was the greater evil, which was the radical left. Right. It is really striking how many of uh, these people listed in this article justified their support for fascism in terms of their opposition to communism. So like, why is it that anti-communism so often strays into open support for the most repellent sections of the extreme right? I mean, even to this day, we see that, right? Well, I mean, socialism is, you know, the involvement of the majority the overwhelming majority of society in the running of their own lives. It is fundamentally a, a democratic impulse. Um, it is, as, as Marx described it, the self-government of the producers, of the only productive class. Um, you know, it, it is a vision that doesn't require <laughs> coercion. It's based on voluntary association. The free development of each is the essential precondition for the free development of all. Uh, to borrow a phrase, and at root, capitalism is the rule of the minority over the majority. Uh, it can only survive with force, uh, on the basis of force. Now, there's all sorts of ideological means by which they kind of, you know, paper over that and cover it up. But but that is the spectrum uh, of capitalist rule, you know. And and when push comes to shove. Um, the forces committed to maintaining capitalism historically have always been more willing to apply more force rather than risk losing the entire system. Uh, you know, and I, I think it's, it is, you know, important to know that, that 
Mackenzie King, and we also quote George Drew, who was later the uh, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, um, as well as Premier of Ontario, and one of the people who turned the old Conservative Party of Ontario into the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Uh, in a lot of ways, was a red Tory. Um, he was also, in his own ways, a pretty vicious anti-Semite um, who was involved in what was called the Gestapo campaign against the Ontario CCF after the 1943 election. Um, but he had a view of conservatism that was socially minded, that it would offer reforms. Um, I believe he was in favor of, of the Rand formula or, or some version of it, uh, which had been introduced federally, that they're willing to use reforms insofar as it helps to maintain the status quo. But they know who their friends are <laughs> if the status quo can't be maintained with reforms. Um, and their, their friends run the spectrum from right-wing to ultra-right-wing. Right. One of the other really key establishment figures we should mention here is uh, Vincent Massey, uh, whose name is uh, plastered all over Canada and Canadian institutions. Can you maybe talk a little about a bit about uh, his support for uh, fascist causes and fascist ideas? He's amazing. I mean, he's he's deplorable, but he, he's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, Massey, the Massey family, you know, Vincent Massey, Hart Massey, who uh, the Hart House that UFT is uh, named after, uh, Massey Hall, Massey College. Yeah. So you know, the, the Massey family, you know, were one of probably the most prominent kind of old money families in, in Canada. You know, Massey Harris and, and Massey Ferguson were, were very large. They, they made uh, farming equipment and they were probably at one time the, the wealthiest family in Canada. Was, uh, you know, their, their power was considered so significant that the editor of, of Saturday Night Magazine, kind of the leading liberal uh, papers or uh, magazines in Canada, when Vincent Massey was made Governor General of Canada, he's a famous quote, uh, in Toronto, there are no social classes, just the masses and the masses, right? These, they would be like the West, you know, they would be like Galen Weston today. And yeah, he was the governor general of, of Canada. And he, from his correspondence, which are available at U of T, appears to have corresponded um, at, at one point with Oswald Mosley, leader of the British Union of Fascists. And he definitely held well-known anti-Semitic views, and that, that's written about by Irving A. Bella in his history of anti-Semitism in Canada, not, none are too many. Um, he was one of the people in, in the upper echelons of the federal government who, when a, a series of a number of Jewish refugees came to Canada, um, supported turning the, the boat away. The phrase from one Canadian official at the time is, is fairly famous. It's none, it's too many. But uh, he was also in favor of appeasing Hitler in Germany. And he made a trip to Germany. And, and this is written about in uh, one of the major biographies of him, the Imperial Canadian, uh, which I cite in the book. Uh, and he, I, there's no record of him meeting Hitler himself, as far as I could tell. But he did meet uh, Ribbentrop. And uh, Thought he was a bit second rate, a little unserious, but he was quite friendly with uh, Frau von Rippentrop, his, his wife, um, who uh, he found, uh, as he described it, uh, quite genuine 
I'm not entirely sure what that means. But if he were over there to protest uh, fascist rule in Germany, that would be a, a strange way to go about it, I must say. Definitely. It's really interesting as well, like, like even to this day, like we still see uh, far right movements, even those that present themselves as not explicitly fascist or Nazi. Um, they're still trying to market their programs as being uh, populist or geared towards uh, the masses. But of course, many of their backers continue to be deep pocketed elites. Uh, I remember back in 2019, you wrote that article about how uh, Faith Goldie's mayoral campaign took donations from people in Toronto's wealthiest neighborhoods. Uh, and I think the People's Party also has a fair number of wealthy and well-connected donors too. So has anything really changed? Do we still see this kind of phenomenon of, of wealthy elites having this soft spot for, for maybe if it's not fascism, at least far right or reactionary right ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, one thing that, that is, as I've you know, spent a couple of years covering the far right, is that it is very, always very two-faced. They have the face they present publicly and then the, the face they present amongst themselves. So Faith Goldie doesn't, when she would do mainstream interviews, when she would appear on mainstream media, she ne wouldn't necessarily bring out all the conspiracy theories. And you look at some of these small fascist groups, you know, they, they have a way of talking amongst elites that, you know, expresses their common cause. And, and their common cause is, you know, anti-immigration, but also just broadly against the left causing disorder. Um, and that's something the, the owners of the country are, are generally interested in. Um, that's not to say that these people would want fascism. And, and in, in some cases, they have even supported laws against particular fascists and legal attacks against certain fascists. But they have a, yeah, a creepy relationship that you often find among a layer of big business owners of, of you know, wealthy elites where they may not agree with these people on everything, but they get how they think. <laughs> they, there's a common interest, common values. You know, and... Um, that that's quite unsettling. You know, I think we spoke about socialism a, a moment ago. I think looking at these elite backers, I, I don't think the message one should take is that you know these donors uh, giving money to kind of no hope far right candidates means fascism is imminent. Uh, I don't think that's true, but it does go to show that. <laughs> We shouldn't trust these people to run the industries that we rely on to survive. Uh, you know, um, I look at this and I am uh, an even stronger believer in the necessity of, of socialism, where no one's livelihood depends on anyone who's friends with Faith Goldie. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, it, that if this, the wealth of society is going to bankroll, far-right nutjob candidates that the wealth of society could perhaps be better used, um, you know, investing in hospitals and education um, instead. And um, you know, that regular people don't have a use for the, the far-right, but the elites certainly do in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that it's like it's uh, it's almost this class component is still very much there, but it's a little more uh, insidious, I guess. Like, as you say, they're giving money to to no hope uh, candidates. Um, 
not with the intention of, uh, or, or not with the likelihood of actually imposing a fascist government, but with kind of like extending influence in a kind of more creepy and perhaps even more troubling ways, which uh, again, I think speaks to why we can't, as you said, we can't rely on these people to, uh, to either counter fascism or to either provide uh, meaningful alternatives. And I think it's a hopeful note to end on that uh, once again, uh, socialism is the only antidote to this uh, reactionary trend. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Mitchell. Um, where can people follow your work and uh, do you want to plug anything? Yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter at Thomsonian underscore M. I, I'm sorry, my, my name, every version of my initials and name has already been taken. So I have to go with that, that fairly pretentious um, Twitter handle. Uh, I write for Press Progress at, at pressprogress.ca and write basically a monthly piece for Jacobin. So uh, that's where you can find me uh, most active. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mitchell. You've been listening to an episode of the Maple's Great Gilded North podcast series. To support our work, go to readthemaple.com and click subscribe. Thank you for your support.